Welcome to It's Not So Black and White, a podcast where we explore difficult topics with a desire to understand why we think and feel the way we do. I'm your host, Coach John McLernan, and each episode I bring you a guest who brings a challenging topic for us to shine a light on. This podcast is also broadcast live on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. So on whatever platform you follow myself, Coach John McLernan, you have the opportunity to participate in this discussion during the live stream. We encourage your participation both by commenting and asking questions. This podcast is about exploring the human experience behind the ideas with compassion and critical thinking. So let's dive in. All right, welcome back to another episode of It's Not So Black and White. Tonight, we're going to talk about a rather controversial topic. We're talking violence. So I've got Dylan Sessler with me here. And I'm going to throw it over to you, Dylan, and let people know a little bit about your backstory and why we're discussing this today. So how are you doing tonight, man? I'm I'm doing fantastic. And I'm, I'm always I'm always happy to come on a podcast with you, John. So it's I'm happy <laughs> to be here. That's awesome. Yeah. But uh, yeah, t- why does this, why is, why do I know anything about violence? Um, I'm a, I'm a mental health coach, um, on TikTok, and, you know, my background really started with, uh, sociology. So I, I, I studied sociology in the, in my undergrad and I also started my graduate degree and never finished it. Um, but I always kind of caught myself really paying attention to how sociology digs into violence. Um, and I was really, honestly quite disappointed with the the response that I got you know sociology is a very tries to be a, a very science like uh, you know institution um, and it always kind of gets this bad rap of like is it science is it not um, mm-hmm. it likes to say it's science but then other you know other institutions will look at it and say you know it's it's not really you how do you study people how do you scientifically study people the way right, you're studying yeah. them you know and so I, I you know I struggled with how they approached violence um, because one of like the major markers of violence that they used was things like homicide rate, which mm. tells you almost nothing about what actually kind of, you know, is the perpetration of violence. Um, and so that's where it kind of started for me. And, uh, you know, I've been in the military for 14 years, so it's not like I'm a, I'm a stranger to um, using it myself. Uh, you know, I, I did MMA and jujitsu and Muay Thai for about, seven to eight years before I tore my ACLs. And here I am now. Um, currently I'm a, I'm a U.S. Army sniper. I'm a section leader right now. So I run, um, a, a, a nine man squad of, of snipers as well as do kind of the, almost the complete contradiction to it, which is I'm a mental health coach, a life coach that helps people stop themselves from committing suicide and things, mm-hmm. things like that. So I'm kind of in an interesting realm um, and I, I very much love the topic of violence because I think it's something that um, humans really need to get a grasp of and understand. Um, and I think very much need to understand the use of to to live life because, you know, there's a natural portion of this this whole world that society likes to think is not there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always enjoy just listening to you speak because I know you're a speaker as well as an author. And usually when you, when you share something, I have about six questions that come up. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the first thing that comes to mind actually is really just this idea of sociology. So outside of the world of academia, prob- people might hear this word and have like no idea kind of what it's referring to. Maybe we could just give them a baseline definition so they know this, this point of reference. It You know, sociology is is 
the study of humans and human habits, right? Mostly habits. Um, yeah. You know, we we study norms, we study uh, morals, ethics, brain science at this point, like we're, we're cognition. Um, there's so many, you know, criminology is a really good example. Like, hmm. you know, the, yeah. the criminal justice system is kind of, has been really built on the back of sociology because right. it's one of the, it's one of the, the one places where statistics actually kind of get studied in terms of crime. And so the, you know, uh, the UCR, the, I think it's the uniform crime report, um, that is, it comes out consistently every year is studied by criminologists, which have a background in sociology. Um, and criminology really came out of sociology. So sociology really is this study of humans and human habits. And, mm. um, you know, how do we quantifiably study humans? How do we quantitatively study humans? Um, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a big, it's a big question to ask, right? Yeah. How, how, how are people being people today? You know, that's really, I think one of the big questions that we ask. Yeah, it's it's like this enormous umbrella term. It's it's like saying chemistry. Yeah, uh, I, I'm a former chemistry major, and I mean, within chemistry, there's probably a thousand different branches of chemistry, depending on where you want to go and where you want to study. Yeah. And so, but I can understand because this maybe doesn't appear to be a hard science in the sense that it can be difficult to take something and put it in a jar and measure it and weigh it in the way that we might in other sort of scientific studies, and yet. We could say this is a scientific study because you know the the study of it adheres to certain rigorous scientific principles. Yep. You know the scientific method. You know. Yeah. It's it, it. You know, conforming to the scientific method is so incredibly harm with uh, hard with people mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. there's just so many variables, right? You can't you you can't really control for all the variables that can come yeah. in play when you're talking about humans, and so. Um, what, what kind of there's only so many ways it's ethical to jam people into like a some right. kind of a chamber and right. study them before they go nuts. <laughs> exactly, and and that's kind of been one of the issues is that throughout throughout the history of sociology, the it's it's interesting because the questionable studies that have come from sociology or even psychology um, are often the ones that we learn from the most, which is you know it's hard to understand you know, or hard to accept, but. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly hard to say to a human being, like, you know, do this and lie, basically lie to them sometimes and, you know, do different tip, you know, tricks on them to to make them think different things and, and you know, to guide their behavior or something like that. It's It can be, it's a hard thing to study. Well, I think, uh, but this might be one of those cases where it's morally justifiable to misinform people. I'm using misinform rather than lie because, uh, you know, I, I understand that there's certain things being omitted or there's a misdirection being applied, but it's being done from a place of we need to learn from this. And I think, you know, you bring up the term questionable study. And I think this this brings to mind thinking about the like, experiments that took place in probably like the 60s and the 70s where mm -hmm. They, they were trying to learn, can people be brainwashed? You know, can we, you know, yeah. just give people a whole bunch of acid and lock them in a room 24 hours a day for like six weeks straight with a two-way, well, a two-way mirror and sort of like observe them without them realizing they're being studied, you know? Uh, and actually, uh, another thought that came to mind, it's a little, little bit off, but is is like a lot of the studies that took place under Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. These were, these from a, from a human ethical and moral standpoint, these were or, horrific studies. Or Japan. Oh, Japan. Yeah, yep. that's right. They often get forgotten in this, but they yep. were they were particularly brutal as well. Yep. And yet that information that they gleaned through these horrific means has actually been incredibly valuable and useful to, as a contribution to the body of science. Yeah, which is, 
which is interestingly kind of leading us back to this understanding of violence, right? Like this, it's a, it's a big topic that, you know, violence itself is, is, is a human, you know, it's a human action. Yeah. Right. It's a human behavior. So it's, it's always an interesting discussion to dig into it. And, and where I kind of found myself, why sociology kind of matters in this discussion, I think is when I first started sociology, right. I really, I came from a place I had just come home from Afghanistan. So I saw violence, right. I saw what people do to each other. Um, and what I noticed is that how we looked at people, right. Like the, the real, you know, a good definition to, to understand sociology is the study of development, structure, and functioning of human society. How we approached that in, in class, in classwork and, you know, the, the paper, you know, or, or the papers that we wrote, the books that we read was very much from a standpoint where violence almost didn't feel like it existed. Mm, right. Okay. Yeah. And so I just, it didn't sit well with me. And so I was always constantly asking questions of like, how does violence fit in here? Because so much of human history is dominated by us doing terrible things to each other and then kind of writing it out of the history books. Right. And you can, you can see that like, I'm an American, but I'm not, I'm not ignorant to, to the terrible things that we have done. Right. The, the genocide that we've, we've sat on for, you know, hundreds of years of, dominating this country in multiple different ways right and and putting forth our uh manifest destiny and certain you know certain other um almost you know the the world police colonialism imperialism kind of kind of situation that we have going on like i'm not going to say any of that isn't good or bad it just is what it is and and mm. so we've used violence quite effectively to meet our needs and get what we want and control where we want to control. But where's the conversation about that in a place where we are supposed to be studying the development structure and the functioning of human society. And I, you know, that's where, that's where my curiosity kind of began. So it's almost, um, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I'm hearing is from your perspective that, that uh, and you can correct me if I get this wrong, but the violence in some ways is potentially justifiable. Uh, under certain circumstances, yeah, and uh, maybe even if not entirely justifiable, understanding human beings, it's understandable. And right. the thing is, we're we're afraid to talk about this because it's un it's basically unlocking our mind to this idea that okay, maybe we have to let go of some of the ideals that we hold about ourselves as human beings and acknowledge that we as human beings and as human animals, in a sense, yeah. we have violent impulses we have a tendency towards violence uh some more than others and to try to ignore it or or wash it out of human existence is at at, at best incredibly naive yes and, and at worst um actually damaging to our understanding of human society well i shouldn't you, you it shouldn't even be human society it mm. should be nature right because we think for for some reason we humans like to think that we own the, the th- everything, right? But, but we don't. Like a, a, an asteroid could come out of fucking left field and <laughs> destroy the entire planet. And guess what? Humans own nothing now and they're all dead, right? right? We're no different than the dinosaurs. We're no different than the dingo. Like we can die just like everything else on this planet and this universe. And, mm. and so there's this, there's this understanding that we're missing out on 
that we also need to be able to fight and to be violent towards others that are encroaching on our, you know, our territory or our lives or our, you know, dependence on certain things. And so that's where it becomes interesting is that where do you draw those lines? Right. Right. I'm not saying everyone should be Nazi Germany or the USSR or even Russia right now, or even the USA that the, the, um, you know, the statement could be made, but what is necessary. And I kind of, you know, you know, I can't, I kind of developed this from nature, right? Where do you hold your space, right? Hmm. You can look at it from a macro and you can look at it from a micro perspective. And I like to look at it from a micro because who's going to really perpetrate violence the most is just human beings, right? Right. Just one, one person at a time. Um, and so it becomes very situational or circumstantial. Um, there's always going to be a time in your life where someone encroaches on your space. There's going to be a time in your life where someone bullies you. There might be a time in, in your life where someone, you know, attempts to rob you or harm you or hurt you. And so what would you do then? Right. Would you lay down and die? Would you give up? Would you fight back? Uh, you know, the, the circumstances of violence become complicated, right? At, at mm -hmm. best, but I can tell you right now, oftentimes the person that has the ability to fight survives. Yeah. Right. And so that ability to at least defend yourself or protect yourself, which requires some conduct of violence to understand can, can usually make it out of that situation with their life. Mm. And so you, you would say that, I mean, ideally just about every one of us would develop some sort of ability or it would be prudent to develop some sort of ability to defend yourself in a physical fashion because the likelihood of you know, each one of us encountering violence at some point in our life is actually probably fairly high. Yeah. And I and mean, let's be honest, like anything can happen, right? Imagine yeah. if, if, you know, imagine if you were Ukrainian right now, Yeah. that, that conduct of violence would be pretty beneficial right now if you, if you knew how to do it. Right. And so it's, it's an interesting kind of, situation right like all of this all of this i think kind of stems from what religion has kind of pressed upon us in 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 history where like look at the 10 commandments right one of the first one of the first few i don't know them exactly but thou shall not kill right and yet that exists right but we have codified into law justifiable homicide right mm. and so how does that make sense, right? Like the the history of religion, you know, and this is a debatable conversation because some people believe in religion and some people don't. And right, I'm I'm one of those people that I don't necessarily believe in the the deity per portion of religion. I'm I'm an atheist, but mm -hmm. I have no qualms with people that do. I think what is most most important here is that people have faith, right? And faith yeah. to me. Is a, is a completely different topic, but I want to get back in line. What I look at in terms of religion, religion isn't necessarily a form of control, but it's a guiding, it's a guiding purpose for people to follow and to, to make sense of their life and develop meaning and then developing a, basically a structure for society to become, you know, mm. integrated, right? And so it's, it's an interdependence. Yeah. 
And I think religion is an interesting one. I, I'm a Christian and I, I'm not shy about, I don't wear it on my sleeve and pronounce and all this kind of stuff, but I am, I do mm-hmm. follow that's that sort of beliefs. And, uh, but I think that what we, what we observe, if we're looking at the religion angle is a lot of, a lot of people have used sort of religious texts and understandings, um, out of context for their own, uh, for their own gain. And I would, right. I would, you know, I apologize in one sense to any Catholics out there, but I'd say the Catholic church <laughs> has probably done a, a pretty darn good job of this yeah. of, of really twisting um, any sort of religious scripture to justify basically setting up an, an empire that's existed for, for longer than any other empire. It looks different now in the modern world, but, um, and we, we witness this in other, other religions as well. I, you know, we could, we can argue which ones have done it the most and Christians, uh, those who, all of them, all of them. Yeah, really. I was going to say we're, we're probably most aware of it because like our part of the world has, has developed under sort of Judeo-Christian uh, principles, at least we could say, yeah. but, but every, every sort of religious text at some point in time, someone wants to carry out violence. Um, they're looking for, is there a justification for this? And right. if I can find a religious justification for it, I can feel righteous about my actions. And it's, it's interesting because you know, you almost you almost look at religion and realize like it is it is an ideal. And what is an ideal? It's something that can never be fully appreciated. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I asked the question, why? Because people don't want to be ideal. They want the ideal for themselves. Right. Right. But the, the understanding of religion is the ideal for the most people. Right. And potentially. Mm-hmm. Right. You can you can argue this um, potentially the ideal for this for the system itself. Right. And so right. how do you, you know, the, the best thing for Christianity or best thing for Islam. Right. And then it's the interpretation of that. And so it becomes a, um, you know, based on the church or the synagogue or the mosque, right. Like the, the group of people that are, you know, really making the rules, that's the ideal that everybody's kind of working towards. Right. And so you get this, you know, you can look at it as oppression, suppression, whatever you want, but ultimately violence is almost always a, a characteristic of these things, right? Where if you don't agree with us, we become violent towards you, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that that's a common thread throughout history of like how you deal with, how do you deal with religion or even how you deal with laws and structures that, yeah. uh, that are supposed to be supporting people or controlling people or however you want to look at it. Um, and so, there's always seems to be this undertone. And for me, this is how it, how I look at it. There always seems to be an undertone of violence. And yet we never look at that and say, yeah, that, why can't that be part of the controlling structure? If, right. It, understanding it. Right. It's like, there's a, there's a, I want to say, a, I'm not sure the word, but like a subtle threat of violence, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, underlying everything because because if all else fails violence is like the last sort of the last resort in terms of control if 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 i don't know if coercion if if talking if sort of collaboration and communication breaks down then ultimately the 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 end result is violence right so and and i kind of look at it as uh, almost like there let's just say if there was a universal truth and you and I probably <laughs> would would have a hard time ever coming to to you know yeah. a perfect agreement what a universal truth is but let's just say that there is something like that you know um what it really is 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 maybe we're trying to use that to guide us maybe to aspire to something like that but that means that we need to be changed and mm-hmm. I, I i wonder if those who don't want to be changed are are those who um they're trying to twist it to suit their 
where they presently are because they don't want to be changed. They want to change what is maybe an ideal into what is, I think you mentioned, ideal for them. Yeah. So we could look at it like uh, recently, I know you and I, neither of us are really <laughs> dive too deep into the news, but we were talking before we started recording. There was recently a, a mass shooting. Um, yeah. Now, I believe there's probably, actually probably been dozens of mass shootings, but there's one that it gets particular like, yeah. coverage. I, I imagine if we were to start combing through newspapers across like the major cities in the U.S., we'd find that there's probably actually gang-related uh, shootings that have occurred in a number of locations, but none of them really get the same degree of media coverage because there isn't as much of a compelling narrative there. Right. And I feel like I almost want to uh, touch on this topic of like the news media and how it potentially um, if frames. If it leads, it leads. Yeah. Yeah. How, I mean, how it frames and even encourages violence. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, like what's, what's interesting is like if it bleeds, it leads kind of came out of, I think the Mm eighties and that idea became, we need to push anything where violence exists. And, you know, it's remarkable. I actually just saw a TikTok on this where this, there's a gentleman early in the eighties that said, you know, up to like 50,000 children a year are getting kidnapped. Right. Um, and he made up this number and he recanted it later in the eighties, like, and you know, end of the eighties. But, you know, if you pay attention to that generation of parents, yeah, what, what, what came from that is this, this overabundance of fear. And so media took this, this idea and ran with it to a point where here's this information. This is misinformation. Let's be real. Sure. Right. Um, you know, this is whether it's, unintended or intended misinformation what what happened from that was people became fearful of everything and everyone that looked like someone that could kidnap right right and, you, and you, there was and a guy became, that drove past the school in a van and it became culture right yeah. we grew up right i grew up in the 90s hearing don't don't talk to strangers right yeah don't get in a car with strangers and now here we are in 2022 with Ubers and Lyfts and all of these, you know, delivery people that bring in food to our home. And like, it's a complete 180 because culture has kind of transformed where, you know, we were like, yeah, this is, this is kind of ridiculous. And here's a company that can make, you know, random people, you can get into random people's cars, right? It's very interesting. Well, it's crazy because there was actually, my brother and I were in the back of my dad's truck when I was about five or six years old outside of his business. He had a pest control business and we were in downtown Vancouver, which is a major city in Western Canada. And uh, we were approached by a gentleman actually who asked us if we liked cookies. And It's weird, right? <laughs> right. And the conversation took a weird turn. I, I think to keep it PG, I, I won't list some of the other things he said, but like both my brother and I, he's only a year older than me, but we both picked up something is really wrong about this situation. And, uh, I don't know exactly how we got out of this situation, but I can still picture, and he was an old man, an older man, like probably in his sixties or seventies, he was wearing like one of those tweed jackets that you would kind of wear in the 1980s. But, uh, I just remember him asking if we liked cookies, like that, that was the start of it. And so this, this, mm-hmm. the irony of, of this actually taking place, um, I mean, it, it shouldn't surprise me in, in a city, like in, in a major city, you're going to have stuff like this, but, um, that was the thing that we were taught as well, right? Like be afraid of adults and particularly be afraid of adult males. Yep. Because they're, they're the ones that are like the most likely to commit violence. Which is, which is partially true, right? Because, you know, and I, and it can be debated, right? But, but males have this propensity for physical violence 
that females don't really have the whether it's the the bio the biology for it or even the practice for it right where culture kind of gives male you know males a lot more opportunities to practice controlled violence right you look right. at sports you look at wrestling football the you know kids get an opportunity male kids more more specifically get an opportunity to conduct conduct those actual sports that require controlled violence um, and you're almost celebrated when you are even harder on it, right? Like when you're, right. where, when you're almost even, you're, you're, you're kind of pushing the boundaries of that violence, right? Like you can look at like Ray Lewis is a good example of this. Like he was a fucking savage, right? right? And you know, there was, there was that point where he almost, he may have killed someone. There's like that alleged crime. Um, but he was one of the best, you know, defensive linebackers in the league, um, in the NFL. And, he was celebrated. He was feared. He was celebrated. Right. And yet he was a fucking savage on the field. Right. And so right. like, it's, it's interesting to kind of look at it from that lens where, you know, maybe there's a reason, right. There's rationality behind every thing that we hear, right. Maybe there's a reason yeah. why males are more feared. You know, that's not to right. say females shouldn't be feared, but females operate and practice violence in different ways because they can't do it the same ways males can. Sure, they, they don't develop the same sort of biological, uh, like you take away testosterone and and everything it does in terms of development, or you take away ninety ninety six percent of the testosterone, and you're gonna you're gonna develop differently, right. and uh, it can I almost guess, be can almost be more sinister. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, more calculating. Yep. Like because men, men can be, could we say, more brutish in a sense? Yep. They don't necessarily have to be calculating because they they can apply physical dominance in a way that that, that females biological females can't necessarily. Right. And so, typically, if a female is going to conduct violence, it's going to be in an entirely different way, a, a much more calculated, thought out way yep. than, than if men do. Um, but just think about who gets getting celebrated. I look at like uh, mixed martial arts yep. and sort of the status that it's been elevated to about, I mean, I remember back in the nineties, it was just like guys wailing on each other with basically yeah. no, no rules. It was, it was really genuinely like a modern day gladiator pit. Yeah. You know, uh, nobody died in there. They kind of had, they kind of had, okay, if you, you can't kill the guy, <laughs> like that right. was like where they drew the line. Which is, which is really interesting, right? You, you mentioned gladiator pit, right? Like we don't have, we don't have a piece of culture like the Romans you know, per se, and I'm not saying Roman society was perfect, um, not even not even close. But the Romans did something very interesting. They actually put violence into their culture with gladiatorial, you know, arenas and games mm. and such and such like that. Right? Certainly, there were slaves, and so that's yeah. an interesting concept to to think about. But not to say we need to go to slaves, but there's this propensity that violence became part of culture. It became a necessity within you know, the institution on, and, and it, it begs the question of, are we, are we trying to create an ideal society and eliminate this p very vital piece of human behavior? And I'm not saying maybe it is vital. Maybe it isn't, I don't know, but it is, it does lead to questions where, you know, people have a, a will and a desire and a want for it clearly because the UFC wouldn't be where it is if it, if they didn't. Right. Well, we're still at a place where, to some degree, at least the threat of violence is necessary to maintain a civil society. And you think if we were to, t for example, if we were to take away 
like in the, in the Roman Empire, they had uh, I can't think of the name of them now. I think it starts with a P. Like, uh, but anyways, they, they were they were kind of like the police, their, their version of the police, you know. They, and they had a uniform. They might have had the hat. They might have had like the red cape or whatever. Yeah. And they would walk around. They were armed with a sword. And if if you know disorderly conduct was taking place, they were there to kind of take care of it. So they weren't exactly soldiers per se. But they were kind of like their version of the police and maintaining civil order. And it could be argued that I don't think that we're that much more civilized in a sense than Roman society was. We just yeah. happen to have the benefit of like ridiculous amount of technological advances. Yeah. I mean, think about we're, we're conducting this interview over the Internet, having never met in person. Right. You know, th- th- it's not crazy. even in the same country. Yeah. Yeah. And so but but. <clears throat> For their time in in the, that period of history, they were probably one of the most successful civilizations that existed, and we could say one of the most civilized for that time in history. Right. But they were able to maintain that because of the threat of violence that hung over it, and they they developed probably the most systematic and ruthless military that just went in and used yeah. like brutal tactics to steamroll people. And then it's like, once we conquered you, uh, you can join the army or you can die. And yeah. they just assimilated more of the, you know, in, in, into the army and then just kept growing that way through, through violence. So we could almost argue that the, the, for the functioning of a civil society, there almost, uh, there almost needs to be the threat of violence hanging over it, given yeah, the way that I mean, we operate as human beings right now. I mean, look at, look at the second amendment in the United States, right? As controversial as it might, might be, um, that is that's a threat to in the opposite direction right it's a threat to the government to maintain like the 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 more democratic process right where you know we are a republic but there's there's an a democratic kind of um overarching theme that you you better not become you know Hitler, you better not allow this to become the USSR. That you better not allow this to become anything but a free and open society where people have the control of the government. And so, the Second Amendment is that 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 looming threat of violence to anyone who attempts that, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know, just like uh, what was it, uh, um, Yamoto uh, from World War II, the Japanese admiral plan world war world war ii or i'm sorry pearl harbor uh behind every blade of grass is a is a rifle you know in america and so like that's that holds true for not only our enemies it holds true for the people that would deem deem it necessary to control us um and so that that in itself kind of serves two purposes right one to defend the nation and then also one to take personal responsibility for your own life and Mm -hmm bear arms against those who would want to do harm to you. So the second amendment is kind of unique. As far as I know, the U S is 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 quite unique. I'm not sure if there's another country around the world that has codified into their constitution or law, the the right to carry personal weapons for defense against a tyrannical government. Um, I don't, maybe, you know, is there any other countries around the world that have something like this codified into law? I don't know about codified into law, maybe more like culture, right? Like, you know, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, Mm. like most families own an AK, right? Like it's, so it's, I don't know if it's, if it's not codified. Lebanon to be somewhat similar as well. Right. Like I, not many countries codified into law against the government, right? Like that, that is one of the kind of the, the genuine, um, differences between most 
you know, most codified laws in around the world. Um, and it's one thing that has allowed us to, to be so expansive in our civilian firearms market. Right. Sure. I mean, I mean, there's, there's money to be made off of this. And I mean, I don't think I went too far off topic, but I think, for example, I don't know if weapons are the number one you export, but I imagine they're very, very high on that list. I, you know, I wish I knew more about the economy, but I mean, weapons manufacturing, I mean, just think of like the F-35, right? Like the F-35, like even uh, uh, Canada is thinking about the F-35 and like that, I mean, just being able to say we have the most technologically advanced weapons in the world, right? And it's not a, it's not a, I don't know if you can consider that an, an arm, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think a human, you know, it, one human tool being to inflict combine, violence, right? I don't think one human being can buy an F-35, but for example, like using that and understanding that there are many countries in the world that are buying F-35s to develop their air force and push it into the future. Um, mm -hmm. And they all just happen to be our allies. So that's convenient, right? Right. So, um, Thinking about that, and uh, we're, we're jumping around a little bit, but I think this always generates so many interesting yeah. <laughs> questions. But we, you, you mentioned like Russia, Ukraine, and, and I feel like this is, a, it's a quagmire in one sense. And I I, I just want to say like, I, I feel like there's more than meets the eye here. It's, I think it's very, you know, I, I, not that we want to advocate for any kind of, any kind of violence, but I just feel as though there's more than meets the eye. I don't Absolutely. think Russia is quite the military power that they're made out to be. However, Basically, because I, I think a, a Western military could probably go in there and clean them up if, you know, if I was to put it that way, you know, it wouldn't be easy. But I guess where I'm getting to is the reason they don't is because Russia has essentially a deal breaker. Yeah. Nuclear. Right. Mm -hmm. it, so we could look at Russia, you know, and, and it's it's an it, Ukraine and Russia is an interesting situation, right? Because there's there's a lot of claims that are probably not so false about the Ukrainian um, development of things like fascism and white supremacy. Right. Yeah. Um, because there's, there were legitimate units that were built on fascism and white supremacy. Um, and so there's, there is that, right. And that's something that's not really discussed a whole lot. You know, there's a whole lot of support, NATO support for like, you know, Ukraine against Russia. And the reality is, is like, you don't really realize that there might be some, you might actually be supporting fascism in this moment um, mm -hmm. against another fascist, right? Regime, <laughs> Potentially yeah. like, like that's the interesting thing about this whole war, not to say it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just, it should be knowledge that should be public, right? And out there, um, you should know what you're getting yourself into. And the United States is also supporting this. Um, not to say that's a good thing or a bad thing, because here's Russia, this big bully versus Ukraine, who hasn't really showed that it's a bully in terms of politically. It's not going to go into Belarus or Poland sure. or anything like that. But there are people inside Ukraine that are bullies mm -hmm. right? that are that are using violence to to maintain their policies or whatever. Um, but like Russia. Well, I was going to say that Ukraine is, I think, even more so than than Russia, one of the most corrupt nations in the world. Certainly, yeah. And I've lived in Eastern Europe, and it's it's um it's it's unless you've lived there, it's kind of a different culture that you don't really get. Like corruption is absolutely baked into it, as yeah. is the threat of violence. And uh, living right next door to Ukraine, uh, the level of racism that I that open like blatant racism that I encountered, like 
shocked and appalled me. Come in, and I, not to make me sound like some sort of righteous whatever. It's just that I grew up in Canada where we wouldn't openly like spew these blatantly hateful mm-hmm. racist rhetoric where they had, it didn't even bother them that they were saying yeah. this stuff, like stuff that my students said to me, like I had to remember that I was living in Poland and not living in Canada. But I, I was, I was like, I would probably be uh, in court with criminal charges at least, if not the threat of jail, if I was to utter these sorts of statements publicly and you have no qualms about saying it, you don't even think it's wrong. Yeah. Like that, that's, that was what I encountered living in Eastern Europe. Yeah. And that's, and that's what we're, you know, that's what we're dealing with right now. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that uh, just how, uh, how we're, you know, kind of sitting in that realm of how are we supporting, like we're supporting, we're publicly supporting Ukraine. We're, we're giving Mm -hmm. them stuff. We're doing stuff for them. Like I wouldn't be surprised if the U S military was actively supporting them in other ways, whether it be Mm -hmm. Intel or um, cyber or something else. But the reality is like, they're not all that much better realistically. If you put it that way. Yeah. And that's a hardly corrupt. Yeah. And what's interesting, that kind of brings me to a, a, a question that I've been thinking about. Can humanity live without corruption? Right. Can they, can, is it, is it even possible? Right. Like we look at this idealistic society and we're like, you know, we don't need, we shouldn't have corruption. We couldn't, shouldn't do this. But like, again, is that part of like the, the intricacy or the undertone of like these things exist and we need to be able to practice them to get them out of our system or whatever. I don't know. I'm just, I'm really curious about that. Yeah. Well, I, I I can't quote direct numbers here, but I have this idea that like, I believe it's in Singapore where they pay their politicians an extremely high salary, like three or four times what we pay our politicians over here. Now we over here, I think already get frustrated at the numbers that our other civil servants make. We're like, here they just gave them, you know, in in like the face of what's likely going to be a recession, you know, yeah. they just give themselves a twenty one percent raise in Canada, and we're like, That's uh, yeah, we're like, what is going? How is it? So not twenty one percent, like twenty one thousand dollar raise, sorry, mm-hmm. annually. That's still a pretty big jump, though. Yeah, and we go, what on earth is happening? And they're doing it to sort of compensate for the coming inflation, and we're like, you idiots, you're the ones that are like causing this. But in Singapore, the idea being that if we pay our politicians a very high salary, they're less likely to be corrupted by corporate interests. And so we can, in that way, make corruption less attractive. Right. Whereas you look at a country like Ukraine, where, and I remember even being in Poland, and we had some some visa difficulties. And we're in the visa office, and this guy is basically like, do you have a bottle of vodka? Like, and we're like, what? He's like, do you want this stamp in your passport or not? Like, <laughs> do you have a bottle of vodka? And, and, and we were like, it just, it wasn't even, again, it wasn't even trying to conceal it. He was yeah. like, you give me something or I don't give this to you. It doesn't matter what our law says. It's like you, you basically, but you think about it, like he's probably being paid a pittance. He's probably struggling to make ends meet. And, yeah. you know, and so this idea that can we get rid of corruption? And I'm like, maybe, maybe to a degree in a prosperous first world country, but I think in a third world country, it's an impossibility. Yeah. I, I, I would almost say it's, it's an impossibility in a first world country. Right. But that, then that leads to the question, okay, do, do we um, say that we expect a reasonable degree of corruption or do we still hold up this ideal? We would like a government free of corruption because if at least if that's the target, we're, we're ultimately going to end up with less corruption than if we say corruption is acceptable. Like well, at what I, point does it just degenerate? Well, I, you know, I, I look at this and I'm like, I just, I just went to my son's baseball game. Right. And, and it, and it's made me think of things, Right. Um, like imagine you're a, you're a parent watching a baseball game, right. And they're 
10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, right? And you look out and you see the coach's son, worst player on the field, but he's on the field, right? Yeah. Isn't that corruption? Right? Like yeah. that's and, – and you don't see other parents being like, hey, coach, take your son out, right? right. So it's it's clearly acceptable, right? We all know it's not right. Like if you were – if you wanted to win this game, you'd probably want that that player out. But the coach put his son in, right? And, you know, that like that's an interesting kind of dilemma is that we know that we could get a better result – but out of respect for this person, we don't say anything or out of, you know, we don't out of the embarrassment that that might cause. We don't, right. We don't say anything. And so there's, there's like this intricate, intricate kind of dilemma that we face the, where this is, this is like the beginning of corruption where we are, you know, this person is actively trying to get his or her son ahead by giving mm-hmm. them more playing time, mm-hmm. right? But we don't look at it necessarily as corruption. We look at it just simply as, you know, well, he's the coach, right? Right. And that's well, it's an interesting, and it just kind of grows from there. Well, you think about like, so my brother lives over in Turkey, and he's been there for about 13 years. And he moved from one really rich private school to another, primarily because uh, a parent came, you know, he, he failed a student. And the parent came and said, what are you doing? He doesn't fail. And he's, my brother was like, well, yes, he does, because he didn't need to do a single scrap of coursework the entire year. And the school administrators basically came to him and said, these are like, you know, one of the biggest donors to our school. You know, what are you going to do? And he said, yeah. and, and so he actually quit and went to a different job because he he refused to sort of bend on his, his moral stance around corruption. But that's the sort of thing that we see, right? And then and then what he sees is like these parents actually go and pay like a f- big donations to say Ivy League schools in the U.S. because it's prestigious to say I went to this school and and get them through these schools and get them these these pieces of paper with their name on it from these institutions that they didn't really earn and so on. But you pointed out something interesting that we could get a better result without corruption, but to some degree, we we permit a certain amount of corruption. And it's almost like there's maybe less harm done by permitting some of this. I'm not sure if that's what you were trying to say, but... Kinda, right? Like what, what happens if, you know, what happens if that coach has a bad temper, right? Mm-hmm. Then what do you have? Violence, right? Like the, or the threat of violence. And so it's, it's you know, is, is, is there a a medium between, you know, or a balance between corruption and violence, right? Because people want to like, why does, why do, why I think why corruption and violence both exist is the preservation of self, right. Or others, right. Like, and, and in self, like that kind of includes the people around you. Right. And so, cause it could be an organization, it could be a system, it could be people, um, it could be a country. And so the preservation of self would say, how do we get ahead? Well, you know, and it may be to keep others behind, right? But mostly it's how do we get ahead, right? And mm-hmm. so the corruption exists. Um, if you're powerful enough, if you're strong enough, the violence exists, um, you know? And so it's not a end-all be-all, but that that's a pretty good marker of things, right? Like why do people do these things? Well, they want to get ahead, right? Even, even psychopaths committing violence is... I enjoy this. And so how do I preserve myself? Right. I enjoy committing violence. I can enjoy doing this 
to hurt people because it makes me happy, right? Which is fucked up, but it is. <laughs> yeah, that's just a little bit. Um, you, so then I wonder, is there this thought that to, to some degree, maybe we should come to terms with the reality that there are some people more powerful than others? Because I, I wonder if one of the reasons why, so we live in one of the most prosperous societies that's ever existed in human history. Yeah. Like ev even our poor people have smartphones. I, I, yeah. Some of the poor people, it's a choice, right? right. Like, the, like I, I know, I, you know, I've, I've <clears throat> talked to every once in a while, I talk to homeless people. And one mm -hmm. of the dudes was just like, he was a veteran. He's like, I just like being out here. Right. I'm just like, easier. I, like in, in many regards, like I understand it. Cause like being in Afghanistan and doing what I've, what I've done, it's like, you actually get to, you actually kind of enjoy that sometimes, right? Like I, I still go to drill and like I slept, I slept on concrete this last weekend. Like I, yeah. I kind of enjoyed it, right? As much as my back did not, there was still a, <laughs> there was still a sentiment of, you know, this is kind of just easier, right? Like doing, doing that. Um, and so like, it's, it's interesting to see, I think not to say that poor countries, people don't make those choices too, but I think, when we are a country that can afford and, and supports people, there's still a sentiment for people that they're like, yeah, I don't want any of that. I just want to be poor. I just want to be homeless. I want to stay on the streets. I like it here. Right. Hmm. That's, and that's a, that's a fascinating perspective in and of itself. I, w I wanted to dive into something maybe slightly more personal for you. Um, mm -hmm. You spent 14 years in the military and you've done um, tours of duty in active combat zones. And so you've seen a different face of violence because at this point, up to this point, we've largely been discussing violence kind of on a more macro scale, societal level, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but you, you, um, what drove you to join the military in the first place? What attracted you to it? Well, I mean, quite frankly, I, I wanted to end my life, you know, and, and mm -hmm. that goes into my own personal story of like, I, I lost my dad to suicide. Um, it's at an early age at six years old. Um, and I, I told myself after that happened, I wouldn't commit suicide. And so what I did was I found a different way to commit violence on myself, which was using other people, right? It's like suicide by cop. Well, mine was suicide by hopefully Taliban or ISIS or whatever else, whoever else I was going to face in a war zone. And so I joined the infantry, um, in 2008, went to basic training, came home and then tried to find every deployment that I could go on in the national guard. Um, and I was unsuccessful until about 2012. That's when I went to Afghanistan for the first time. Hmm. And, and what, what confronted you when you first got there and did you have prior to going there? Cause I guess here's, here's where I get curious is prior to going there, you must've had some idea about what was taking place in Afghanistan. Yeah. But then I wonder if after going there, you came back with an entirely different perspective of what was taking place there. It's so it's, it's funny. Cause I, I did a lot of research on it, you know, more than what I think the average Joe would do. Um, you know, a lot of people were talking about, uh, how, how like the place we were going before we deployed, a lot of the other soldiers were talking about like Kunar is the highest or at the time had the highest, uh, amputation rate. Um, so most, you know, most of the soldiers that came out of Afghanistan with an amputation, they came from Kunar. Um, just because of the terrain, it was remarkably difficult terrain. Um, just a just a terrible because like the the funneling of the mountains mm -hmm. required you to you only had one path in and out, right? And so anytime you went in there, you know, in, into certain spots, almost like, sitting ducks. It's the only place you can put a bomb because it's the only place you can drive, 
right? It's the only place you can walk, right? And so uh, that's kind of what we knew we were walking into. Um, I had gone into the Taliban prior to uh, the war in Afghanistan. Um, you know, there's a there was a book that I that I read. There's literally called the Taliban. I can't remember who wrote it, but I read the whole book and and tried to understand the organization. Tried to understand, you know, what where did these people come from and understand like how how they were taught, like how to understand like the madrasas and how Pakistan really played a, played a key factor in in the war right now or back then. Um, and so I, I did a lot of research on the country itself, the history of the country, like understanding the Russians, the British before them, Alexander the Great. Like these are people that have been through shit yeah. for millennia, right? They have lived in shit for millennia, right? And so these are people that are incredibly hardy, um, that live with a, a code of, you know, of basically violence. Like if, if you day don't, one. Yeah. you know, it, we will offer you care will offer you support if you ask it ask for it pashtun wali um but then if you betray us we will never forget and right and so like it becomes an incredibly difficult thing when you know like things like collateral damage happen to to maintain um relations with a people that have a code like that um and so yeah when i got there you know we i saw my first death within a week, you know, and, and it wasn't our guy, but I mean, I saw it, right. Like we had one guy, like we got there end of March and April 4th, uh, staff Sergeant Christopher Brown from, uh, I want to say fourth ID was, was killed. Um, and you know, I mean, it was, it was intense, you know, and then not long after that, another guy, um, another whole truck got blown up. Um, and they, they rushed them to, to our base. And so another guy died, um, like a week after that. So within two weeks, two guys were dead, right? That we didn't know, but in, in the immediate vicinity of where we were operating. Um, and at the same time, it was actually April 5th when my one of my friends, Josh Pelton, actually, I, I think, committed suicide. He drove off the road. Um, and so like all in that first two weeks was just this, this bum rush of this is different than I ever thought it could be. And it was that it was kind of that moment of like the reason I joined the military very much kind of flashed before my eyes. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot. Right. Like where I, I joined because I wanted to die, but my body was telling me very much so that I wanted to live. Right. And so there was mm -hmm. fear there for the, for the first time, I think in my life where I actually saw violence for the first time in up close and personal and seeing the results of violence and seeing what, what happens when people do bad things to each other. Um, you know, so I saw the, the most evil things. Um, and it, and it really changed my perspective on how I approached living. Right. So, you know, I was, I was under so much stress, but I was, I was actively kind of progressing through my maturity levels. I think mm -hmm. <laughs> you um, had and, to level up pretty quickly. Yeah. Like and, and, and it, it required me to really put my focus into doing the job that I was, I was set out to do. And so we were, you know, luckily I think we had, we had some of the best guys we could probably, probably get. It was an all volunteer unit. So we, we all just wanted to make sure we all came home and, and we did uh, very, very luckily, I believe. 
Yeah. So you you said that there was a switch once you saw like direct violence and the, and the impact of like direct violence. You decided that you wanted to live, um, and and fear came into to, into your experience in a sense. I think it was more of an innate decision, right? I, I don't think it was an outright I wanted to live, um, but I think the decision that I wanted to die escaped me. You know, it it it's interesting because I was, I was suicidal for most of my life, but in, over deployment, I don't remember thinking about it, which is really interesting to me. Right. And, and something I haven't really discussed all that much because it's when you, when you get into these situations where the human body, I think kind of comes out, uh, you know, in, in the decision-making process where the human body wants to live. I really believe it does. Right. Mm. And so like, I, I, and I don't mean to disconnect the mind from the body, but there's processes, there's underlying processes that are happening within the body that, that tell you that your mind is wrong. Um, and, and sometimes we don't recognize that. And I think that was one of those moments where my body was, was actively supporting me in the living process and reminding me constantly that it needed to focus and pay attention or it would die. And so like, it, it just kind of distracted me from like the mental games and the self-deprecation that I was doing for most of my life. And so it's, it's remarkably interesting when you, when you, when you look at violence in comparison to self-violence, uh, mm -hmm. one trumps the other in, in turn, in my case, it's anecdotal, but I really think it's more common than you think. Right. Like I right. think people when, like you're, you're unique, but you're not that unique in one sense. You know, right. we're, we're all different yet. You look at our DNA and we're yeah. like, we want to like, live, no. right? Like you, yeah. you, th you, you throw yourself into the, into the ocean. 99% of people will, will try to swim. Right. Right. Very, very few people will be like, you know what? I'm accepting my fate and I'm going to die. Right? right. And, and that's even if they're suicidal, I don't care who you are. Right. Like you could, you could take a hundred suicidal people and I, 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 pretty, pretty solid on this. I, I, you know, and it's a study we can't do because it's unethical, but I would say 99% of them would want to live, would continue, uh -huh. would start, start treading water, right? Because they right. don't want to, like, I, I don't think people want to die. They, they want to live, but they don't want to live the way that they're living. Right. They don't, they don't want to live with the pain and the distress that they're experiencing. But they, but I think what's, what's interesting is they often don't know how to commit acts of violence of sorts, right? Whether it be like kind of like that, maybe that unintentional, like that verbalization of the threat of violence, right? And that's that's kind of interesting to me right now. That is actually, just thinking about that. So then you, um, your position was in, in the infantry and you mentioned that you're also a sniper. At this, at this time in your tour, were you a sniper? No, I didn't, just, I didn't become yeah. sniper before uh, until last year. Okay. So yeah. both my tours were prior to being a sniper, but um, I did I did act as a designated marksman in my first tour, um, and then just kind of developed my marksmanship skills from there. Mm -hmm. And and I mean here we I don't, I don't want to glorify anything. Uh, I mean I think the U.S. has has a culture, <laughs> a different kind of culture of glorifying military violence. We look at the sort of the Hollywood trails. I grew up in the '80s with thinking about like Rambo and and a few other yes. things like that, where there there was this glorification of like the U.S. military violence, and it was the story of like good versus bad, and we are the good guys. Um, and I think now you have this different perspective where it's like maybe it's not so black and white, <laughs> um, where 
yeah it's you know it's it's interesting because afghanistan itself is so complicated right it's always it always has been because it's so tribal mm -hmm. um what i what i found is that the people that we that we were there with right the people that would come on our base and talk to us um were remarkably supportive right and the people we went and talked to were remarkably supportive what's interesting is that we were a part of, of, of a PRT and an ADT, which are agribusiness development team and a provincial reconstruction team. Um, and what we found is that when, you know, a route clearance package would, would drive out, they would get hit, right? But when we went out, we wouldn't because, because the Taliban knew that we were bringing either money or assets to the, the governor or wherever we were going. And ultimately, that was a good thing for them because of what? Corruption, right? And so they wouldn't touch us, right? They knew what our trucks were. They knew what, they knew the difference between us and a route clearance package or SF or anyone else. And so we became, you know, not untouchable, but it was remarkably rare that we would get hit because they knew what we were doing, right? And so it's, it's interesting, right? It's well, remarkably complicated. Uh, what I just picked up on here was the, the language, like route clearance team. Yeah. <laughs> Almost like a sanitization of the violence that this, this group is a route clearance package. I think you called them. Yep. Like a series of military assets going out with the intention of if we encounter, we're, we're, we're going to make sure that if there's anyone there lying in wait, ready to inflict violence, that we are there to return violence, to make the route safe for these next groups to, to go out. Yeah. More or less. I mean, route clearance is mostly for IEDs. Sure. Bombs, right. But, but yeah, you're right. Like it's, it's also to make sure, you know, one, the route is actually safe. There's no bombs, there's no ambushes. And mm. so, yeah, there, you know, it's a basically a movement to contact, right? We're, we're going out and going to find the enemy. If he right. exists, if he doesn't exist, guess what? The route's clear. Right. right. But that doesn't mean it's clear because, you know, two guys in a, a clot could come out with a, with an ID and throw it in a, you know, throw it underneath a box. Right. And, then it's not clear. Right? So <laughs> right. it's, it's, yeah. it, it's almost impossible to clear routes in Afghanistan just because it's so blind. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, but having, having this sort of personal and upfront, uh, I mean, you, you also then you saw members of your own like military die. And I'm not sure if you saw members of the enemy uh, as casualties as well. And, you know, kind of, if that humanized them to a degree or, or, you know, cause you're, you're going, you're, you're in this hostile zone where you know that there's people out there who actively want you dead because yeah. of where you are in their country and their territory. Right. And was there ever an element of like, where, where you saw their humanity outside of their like willingness to inflict violence? Like. I think what's interesting about Afghanistan is that you don't know who the enemy is, right? The enemy could be your friend. Right. That's, that's how, that's how dangerous of a place it is. Because if you, if you do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing, even if it's misinterpreted, um, you can end up dead because this, you, this guy thinks you disrespected him. Um, and so like, I always tried to act remarkably respectful. Um, but there was one moment on the, the, my final or my last deployment to Afghanistan in 2019, it was my last mission. Um, and this guy, you know, I was leading the, I was leading the, um, the group up to a checkpoint and this checkpoint was run by, um, basically Afghan border guards, 
but it was in the middle of Kabul. So it didn't really make sense. It just, they, that just seemed to be the people that ran it. Um, and we were tasked with kind of developing this checkpoint into something that's more worthwhile. So like adding, uh, vehicle scanners and body scanners and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, increasing security around the the green zone, Afghanistan or in Kabul. And this guy, I remember walking up to him and he, he just had this blank stare, right? Like he, he wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't look into my eyes. Um, and he had his, his hand covering his rifle, um, his safety and trigger group. Um, and so it was really suspicious. He had both hands kind of covering it and it was, it was just slung across his chest. Um, and so that that wasn't necessarily a, a red flag, but like his blank stare really was. Like there was a dis, there was an active disconnection there. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking up as in he him. was disconnecting himself from your humanity. Yes, and I and I remember walking up to him and I looked at him like, "What's up, man?" You know, just like nice, respectful, nothing, nothing crazy, kind of happy. Um, and the I didn't get a response. I was standing right in front of him. He, he was still looking kind of past me. Um, and I, that was the moment when I was like, this is wrong. There's something wrong with this dude. And I, it, it just that the, the chills kind of ran up my spine. Um, you know, my, I didn't like my physical demeanor didn't change, but everything within me was like, I'm going to have to shoot this guy, you know? And so like this, this challenge uh, for me was, to make sure that I was still respectful to this guy and make sure he didn't think that I thought I was, or, you know, make sure he didn't think I was a threat. Right. Mm-hmm. Even though I was, I was, I was, he, his response and then his actions leading up to ultimately the point where we'd left, I was ready to kill him the entire time. Right. I, you know, I had a whole plan in my head of what was going to happen. Um, and I had already, I had told people, you know, I, I had already mentioned it to people. I'm like, I'm staying with this guy. Um, and I never left him. I was, I was eye to eye to him for probably 45 minutes, mm-hmm. um, in a heightened state, ready to, you know, whether it was put my M4 into him or pull my M9 on him to control his AK. Um, but everything kind of said, this guy is a threat and he, and he escalated. He, you know, you put his hand on his, on his pistol grip. He took his safety off. I mean, like all the things that he could do to make himself seem like a threat. He did them. Um, mm-hmm. He was hyper-focused on leadership, um, which is often a side of a sign of like an assassination or something like that. Um, and so, you know, what I, what I ended up doing that finally kind of broke it was, I was eye to eye to him until we were about to leave. And then we kind of pulled, pulled back a little bit, but we didn't quite leave. And he ended up kind of making a beeline uh, around this truck. And I was on the other side of the truck and he, he made a beeline around the truck. And I was like, he's coming, he's coming in hard and fast. And I, I cut him off. I stepped right in front of him and I'm like, whatever you're about to do, I don't think you should do it. Right. And like I said, it just like that, very serious, very intense, Um, and I remember him looking past me and then looking me in the eye. And in this moment, I think he made that decision of like, I don't think this is worth it. Cause he, he saw, I I think he saw my hand on my M nine, um, because I I had my M four chest lung, but I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't care at this point. My M nine was, um, was on fire. It was, uh, in its, in its holster, but my, it was, uh, my latch was unlatched. So I was, I was ready to go. Um, right. I don't think he ever looked down, but I, I think he kind of understood that 
he wasn't getting out of this alive, nor was he getting a, you know, he wasn't going to do what he thought he was going to do because right. I was, I was, I was a foot away from him looking dead in the eye. I've got body armor. He doesn't, he's got nothing but an AK and a couple magazines, but he wasn't going to get those. Um, and so like, it was incredibly tense. And then all of a sudden he just turns around and walks away. Um, and it was just like everything like that. That was like the moment where, you know, he he's human, right? Like right. he, he has his own sense of, I want to live. I, wa- I want to live. Know? Like, and, yeah. and maybe if, if he had been on drugs, if he had been any, you know, maybe a little bit more, uh, sinister in his thoughts, I don't know. Like it, it's just like anything can change in an instant. And maybe it was nothing. Maybe he was just like curious, but he didn't act like it. Right. All of the, all of the, the red flags that, you know, happened or, or that they talk about in, in the books in the training and all the things, all of them happened plus some, right. Plus mm-hmm. some ones mm-hmm. that I was like, Oh yeah, this is, this is going to happen. Well, there, there's an intangible there that, that, it- you haven't really touched on in a sense, but it's, it's, could we call it, I don't want to call it the sixth sense because we actually have like eight or nine of them, but uh, call it a, n- a ninth right. sense, you know, this ability to read uh, almost like an energy, like your brain is yeah. busy taking in all of this, like all of these details of data around every single thing from a facial flicker to a finger movement, to a posture, to like all of these details are quickly being processed and you're making a, a, a rapid fire decision. Is this person a threat or, or not? And, but sometimes we, we also refer to this as a gut instinct or just a mm-hmm. feeling about there's, there's an energy here yeah. and I don't know what I'm picking up on, but I'm picking up on something that's, that's kind of unclear. Um, right. But in that well, case, the, yeah, the, the heart is five, has 5,000 times more electromagnetic energy than any other organ in the human body. It's an oscillator. And so, you know, we, we can pick up on that energy, right? That, that there's mm. something being pushed out. There's an aura, right? Like, and I, I say that with, without the woo woo kind of, kind of feeling like there's an electromagnetic aura that the heart is giving off. Right. And it's not necessarily designed, I would say to give it to other people. It's really designed, I think, to oscillate the body, which is to time the body, right? And so when your heart is off, your entire body starts to become off, right? And that's where disease, I think, really kind of comes from. But it affects people, right? You, If you're a very happy person and you walk into a room, people notice. If you're an incredibly negative person and you walk into a room, people know. Before you often get, you know, people know when you are not feeling good, when they're just with you. And it's a, it's like, there's some kind of feeling sensation, uh, you know, energy of sorts that is actively being pressed upon other people in your immediate vicinity. And I read that, right? Like that, I really, that isn't that, that instinct is real. And that like, it's, it's the, it's the nature kind of discussion that we kind of really haven't hit on in this whole conversation of violence, but (laughs) like, yeah. There's, there's a real tangible kind of idea here where in nature, there is a necessity to survive and there's a necessity to understand that to survive might require violence, you know, and certainly if you're a predator or prey, it, that determines what kind of violence you're going to be, right? Like for, for me in that moment, I was predator, right? I was, Mm -hmm. he thought he was predator, but I was a predator hunting a predator. You know, 
and and so, so, so the you're conduct, apex in this in this context I, I was certainly trying to be right like I was, <laughs> yeah. I was really hoping i would come out on top in that one right yeah like that yeah. was that was my last mission i wanted to come home and there's something kind of interesting just from the human element here uh, and knowing what you do as like a mental health coach outside of the military. And I think you touched on the very interesting paradox of this uh, right at the beginning yeah. of this discussion, you know, the fact that you are actively working to help people or prevent people from inflicting violence upon themselves. And yet you're, you're engaged in an organization that, that uses the controlled, uh, the, the controlled threat of violence essentially to carry out the will of the government of, of, of your country. Yeah. Um, but there's, in your work as a, as a coach, then I wonder, there's probably people, everybody you work with has likely been through some kind of trauma and likely some kind of violent trauma. Yeah. And I wonder how many people say, like, I had this feeling, but I brushed it aside or something along those lines. All of them. All of them, right? Like, that's the that's the remarkably interesting piece of all this, if, I, if, if I'd say, right? Like, you know, I, I was reading a book. Uh, I've been reading a book lately called when the body says no. And, Mate. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. And, and it just confirms so much of what I've, what I've really been thinking over the years where like he's talking about relationships and this idea that power might look like the, the person who controls the attention, right. Where in, in a partnership, you know, and I, I I'm going to read a quote real quick that I, I highlighted the other day. The partner that must suppress more of his or her own needs for the sake of the relationship is more likely to develop physical illness. And that that idea of suppression or oppression or violence or anything like that, when when someone has to cater themselves to someone else more than the other, right? More than themselves, mm. uh, it, it puts your physical your 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 physical health at risk. And not only that, but you know, if your physical health is at risk, obviously your mental health and everything else is kind of at risk. And so when people brush aside that feeling, they're brushing aside their own needs and they're, they're paying attention to other people's needs. And this often leads to kind of where we, you know, where they find me is that they don't know how to have, they don't feel like they can have a connection with their body. They don't understand what their body's doing or they don't know, they don't understand how to interact. They don't know how to, how to be in a relationship or appreciate themselves or care for themselves because they've brushed aside so many of these feelings because of, you know, this, this almost this requirement within them that says to survive, I have to give and support others or else, right? And that or else is often because of trauma and where does mm -hmm. what more often than not trauma comes from violence um mm. in in humanity certainly there's accidents and and other things but so much of it comes from active violence right and conscious violence and it's it's remarkably uh disconcerting and disconnecting for people and it and it leads to a host of physical issues that are you know according to you know gabber mate it's remarkably rational, right? The body makes these choices for you, right? And that's why he labeled his book when the body says no. Right. Saying it's attempting to bring something to your attention that your mind has been suppressing. Yeah. So then I wonder if there's, um, cause then I try to say, okay, well, what is it that would lead somebody to sort of maybe suppress or ignore these things? And obviously trauma is a contributing factor, but I wonder then if there's this fear, I don't trust my body. So if I start listening to it, I might 
Like I might go crazy or I might be crazy if I, if I try to listen to, but maybe there's a, maybe there's a delineation or distinguishing between listening to the body and listening to the mind. I'm not sure if I'm posing that correctly, but. I don't think it's incorrect, but I think it's, it's, that's not the first place it goes, right? Because more often than not, it, it's usually starts in childhood, right? Mm -hmm. Where, where, you know, the deeper sense of trauma kind of starts, it can, it can certainly start in adulthood, but like the deeply scarring trauma starts in childhood and what often happens is we're not in a place where we can kind of sense ourselves yet right we don't have the words or the vocabulary or the understanding to say this is who i am right and even now like we struggle with that question right you know you know we may have mirrors and pictures and cameras and all the things that can look at who we are you know but we don't really, we're not really, we're not a really good species that's saying this is who I am, right? Because you ask people who they are and they're like, I'm a mental health coach. Now that's your job, right? Like mm -hmm. that's yeah, not who yeah. you are, right? Like even your name, like would be a better answer than that. I'm Dylan Sessler, right? Like, and so like realistically, I think people dive into that, that mindset of, well, what just happened here is a determination that I need to do this, right? It's a rational decision-making process of what gets me hurt less, right? And so people be people pleasing often becomes a habit because this person, if you didn't take care of them, if you did not please them, it was stress, right? And what's, what's the body going to do with stress? It's going to try to eliminate it rationally. Because it doesn't want to be stressed. This, the, there's no good stress. It's just fucking stress. And so, you know, the body's going to try to eliminate stress, even if that means giving up yourself to make sure other people are supported and taken care of. Hmm. That's that's a very interesting perspective. And I think about a few, a few different people I've had conversations with today. I'd love to be a fly in the wall listening to you and them converse. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's fascinating for me. I have two two things I kind of wanted to touch on as as we as we start to wind this down. I mean, because obviously we could probably go, yeah. pull a Joe Rogan here <laughs> right. and keep going. But one of them was the the criminal justice system. I wanted to bring it back to that because you touched on this earlier when we were talking about the study of sociology and how the criminal justice system has kind of given us it, it, it's it's that ethical mm. <laughs> ethical in air quotes right. <laughs> ethical ability to study these humans because they've they've committed some sort of act against the laws of our society we can now put them in this institution and then study their behavior in this institution yeah the 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 us maybe more so than any other country has like i'm i'm almost not sure what i want to say because you know yeah. i'm not an american i don't live down there but i just just say it <laughs> just say it if it, it feels there's like this inst this entire institution down there that's almost enslaving people and uh almost um maybe far more punitive than necessary to get people into this system it, and, and if if i were to clarify i would start with the war on drugs okay yeah right and and i think you know, and, and there are so many different pieces of this, right? You can look at like expired licenses and poverty and, and how all of these things kind of affect who gets labeled a criminal. Um, and it can be kind of, you can certainly look at it as very capitalistic. Um, but I want to look at just the war on drugs because I think it's very unfair, right? Like I think it's the most unfair piece of it. Because the the war on drugs really started in I think the eighties mm -hmm. yeah. when the crack cocaine epidemic 
epidemic, we call it, um, mm. started. And so who used crack versus who used cocaine was culture, right? Mm. African-Americans used crack, white people used cocaine. But what you saw was an influx of uh, crack cocaine users being uh, charged with possession. And so that continued throughout the 90s and even into the 2000s. Um, and so what this did was culturally, it it decimated a, a population, a minority, right? It decimated mm. a minority, a, a, a culture of fathers, right? Um, comparatively to there's still people using cocaine. There's still white people using cocaine. There's still blue collar people using, you know, marijuana and cocaine, and they're doing it in a way that's not getting them caught or there's just not being, there's no investigation really being pushed into that area because of broken windows theory, right? We started looking at the people that had broken windows, right? Mm. And, and so policing kind of throughout the, the late 20th century and into the 21st century um, really focused on a sociological idea of broken windows theory. And we started making arrests of people, you know, to, to, to get the bigger fish, which was drug crime, right? And because media kind of amplified the effect of drugs on this society, it, it just, you know, there's, there's so many things within that kind of realm that, that we created the very problem that exists today. Right. And, and, you know, it, I, is it white people? Is it black people? You know what? It's a fucking problem, right? Regardless of race, it's a fucking problem. And it's, this this idea that now we're looking at legalizing marijuana and yet for the for the last however many years we've been putting fathers yeah. you know not just fathers but you know a majority of fathers in prison for possession of marijuana and it's absolutely mind blowing to look at that and and think about like this is an actual conversation we're having but we're not digging into what has happened in history where we have absolutely demonized black men in society and and put them behind bars because of what possession selling drugs like trying to make a living in a place where you know the, there's little hope there's little hope right and so you think a black market's not going to exist coercion's not going to exist you think corruption's not going to exist or violence isn't going to exist in a place where there's limited you know there's limited support there's like you know it's just yeah. like the, you know, we can go back to redlining. We could go back to so many different things, but ultimately we have a problem in society and people want to blame other people rather than look at the problem in its entirety and its propensity and say, well, our policies were part of the fucking problem to begin with. Right. And, and not only that, but our studying of the problem, broken windows theory came from sociology, Right. It's mind blowing that we're not having deeper conversations about how we can actually approach this and say, you know what, we fucked up, right? Mm -hmm. And just just to clarify for those maybe for those who haven't heard this before, in a nutshell, could you summarize broken windows theory? So so basically, broken windows theory is this idea that you know if you had twelve houses, right, and one of them had broken windows, that's probably the one where crime is happening. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it, that's a, a very simplified summary of it. But right, yeah. that's the idea is that, you know, you look at 12 cars, the one with broken windows, there's probably crime around that car. Right. right? Yeah. And so what would happen is, you know, police would often focus on uh, expired license plates. Right. 
And so they would use expired license plates as probable cause to stop and check the car. And oftentimes you'd smell weed and guess what? There's an arrest, right? There's a drug arrest. Um, you know, and, and sometimes the, you know, police would emphasize this is, this is how we have to operate. This is what we have to look for. Um, and because, because weed often kind of became uh, a, a standard for also drug, you know, and not drug, but gang affiliation, it then mm-hmm. became, you know, a, a deeper, a deeper conversation um, or a deeper kind of influx of black males, right. Mm-hmm. And African-American males. And, and unfortunately, like there's, there's truth to it, right. There's real tangible evidence that we've, we've destroyed a generation of, of, african-american fathers right not to say that they didn't estimated them yeah right it's not to say that they didn't have any impact on their own their own life course but you know not to say it's white policy but it's policy that was probably made by white people at the time Mm -hmm. uh, that certainly impacted this generation and and there needs to be a discussion about it well just think about like the cycle of violence um if we were to look at where violence occurs predominantly, you know, like I don't want to say mass shootings are an anomaly because it seems like they happen a lot, but, but the ones that get publicized are probably still an, an anomaly. Like if you were to add up the number of people who have died in a mass shooting versus the number of people who've died in gang shootings, yeah, you would see like, it's a fraction, uh, you know, a fraction of people die in mass shootings versus gang shootings. Well, so then we would like ask like, just yeah. standard homicides even right. Like, or car accidents, like, the the number the number is un unproportionate to the the media that it right. that it gets right and so like whenever whenever you see a mass shooting there's probably a, another societal problem that has a lot more merit and a lot more there's a lot more issues with it um, you know like just just about anything you can think of is probably more important to focus on than than not to say it's not a bad thing but. Um, you know, there's, there's probably a lot to be said for alcoholism and drug addiction, um, trauma in general and suicide, right? Like I, I don't know how many people a year, uh, die by mass shootings, but I can guarantee you it's not as many as, as suicide, right? right. 48,000 people died last year, or I think 2020, uh, by suicide. That's a, that's not a small number. And I think we'll just think with shootings, the number on a daily basis. That's it's a, a shocking number, right? Right. I think mass shootings is usually around two to three thousand a year. Right. And but what what I guess what I was thinking about was um, that that we see um, because as a direct result of sort of these policies that you, you're talking about, we see also fatherless young men falling into a life of crime and violence as a means to survive. And I, I believe there would be some, uh, I, I can't say for certain, but with your sociology background, maybe you can clarify that like fatherlessness, the lack of a strong male figure in someone's life, regardless of race, um, has an effect in particular on young males and how they, um, how they become, I don't say the word civilized, uh, but for lack of a better term, how they become integrated into a society. Yeah. And so it's like this here led to an influx in violence because let's say males have a higher propensity towards violence, maybe biologically speaking. And so with no other means to sort of care for themselves, that's what they fell into. And then maybe as maybe this is, I don't know what, what came first, the chicken or the egg, but I think about something like hip hop culture and how it glorifies violence and gang violence. Yeah. And there's even, I was trying to think of the name of that, that, um, 
there's a certain type of hip hop that like glorifies like gunning down your enemy. And I can't think of the name of it, but I think it made the news recently. Like, you know, this type of whatever it was, this hip hop where you, you basically trash talk the guy you just killed or something like that. Yeah. But this, this whole like subculture of violence and even glorifying violence, like why does it exist and where does it come from? Well, I, I think we've always glorified violence, haven't we? You know, whether, yeah. whether it's, uh, I mean, I look, look back to Rome, right? Like <laughs> this has not been a, a, a new thing. Like that's, it's why we look at history and, and we look at who, who won and who lost, right? Like we've always kind of glorified the victors, mm-hmm. right? It's why movies, the people like, who inflicted violence better. Right. Like the, it's why we glorify movies like 300 and Troy, you know, like those are, those are movies about ancient times. Those people celebrated their victories. Right. And so right. violence like the Sparta, I mean, just look at Sparta, right? Like this is a whole nation bred to, to commit violence, right? They would kill babies that were not up to standard. Right. And that kind of life, right. As, as hard as it was, it was celebrated to be the best at committing violence. And so it's, it's really interesting that, you know, you ask a question like that because that has existed. It's not new, right? Mm, We just, mm. I just don't think we, I don't think we accept it as part of human nature. I think people look at violence very specifically now in, in modern day societies. And we say, that's disgusting. That's Mm -hmm. it's distasteful. It's, It's distasteful, but the reality might be is, there might be a way to bring it into, into context of society and culture and say, this is where you can conduct violence, right? Unadulterated, right? Like, like I'm not saying the purge needs to happen, but right. maybe there needs to be an arena. Maybe we need to have a place where, you know, it's acceptable for people to go conduct violence if, if that's what they want to do, if that's the you know, the volunteer in them wants to do. I don't know. I'm not saying that's the the best idea, but we need to have the conversation because gangs are become, are, are, have always been a thing. Tribalism within, you know, the American political system is now becoming more of a thing. There's, there's more. Becoming more, more violent, really on both sides, both sort of extremes of the political spectrum. It seems like you are attracting the people who are willing and eager to commit violence in the name of their cause. And they don't understand it. That's the thing. It's like right. I I grew up in a place where, you know, I didn't necessarily understand violence. And then when I joined the military, I certainly didn't understand it until I I was actually there watching it happen. Um, and that's not to say that I I was deeply shaken by it and I would never do it again, but I don't want to commit violence if I don't have to, because right. I know what it does. And one, I know what it I know what it does to people when you have to kill someone. And I know what it does to people when you've watched someone get killed or, you know, have violence conducted on you and neither are good things, but it's also remarkably important to be able to defend yourself so you can live. Right. So it's almost like you're describing a real paradox here. We have this biological sort of basal tendency towards the violence. And yet there's maybe, I don't know if if it's the right way to say it, the higher level human that goes I'd actually prefer not to conduct violence if, if I didn't have to, because yeah. it's actually a traumatic thing. Maybe because we witness our own mortality in seeing another die. Yeah. I love, I love, honestly, I love how Jordan Peterson puts it. You should be a monster, but then you should learn to control it. Right. I, I, I really love that sentiment because that's, 
that's what it takes. Like when I was, when I think back to that situation where that, that last mission, when I'm looking at that guy, the things that were going through my head were, were gruesome. Mm -hmm. Like I, I was putting myself in a place where I was going to become a monster and I was Mm -hmm. ready for it. Right. Like I look at myself now and I'm like, I was ready for it. I was absolutely like, I, what, what, what I was thinking was if he moved his AK at all, I was grabbing it and I was putting my nine mil in his face and I was going to pull the trigger. Right. There was, there was going to be no question. No hesitation. It, right. Yeah. Like I wasn't going to point it at him and hold him there. I was going to pull the trigger and end his life because my people and myself matter more than him. Right. Mm-hmm. And one, it was also my last mission. So I had really nothing to lose. Like what, <laughs> right. what, what I was doing, I, I was ready to protect myself. Right. Am I happy I didn't have to do it? Absolutely. But I was ready to be a fucking monster if I had to. Right. Right. And in that moment, it was like, I knew I could do it. Right. All of that training that I had, I had built myself up to do, um, you know, and the, 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 I think one of the most incredible books I've ever read on, on violence itself was on killing by uh, retired Colonel Dave Grossman, man, like the, the impetus of training to, to prepare people to, to conduct violence is incredible. Right it works. Right. And I really feel that that was the case when, when this happened, um, because I really, I had visual, you know, like kind of you'd mentally, visualized, yeah, you'd rehearsed yeah, this. I have visualized it. I had prepared for it and I was ready to, you know, literally push him back against the wall and put that nine mil there and, and just do what I had to do to, to protect myself and others. Um, and that's, that's a remarkable thing to think about when, when you get down to it and understand that, you know, that's a gruesome thing, right? Like even, yeah. even talking having, about having this, to I'm witness sure, it. I'm sure right. people are like, yeah, that's fucking crazy to think about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but here, here's what comes to mind for me is you're talking about how we, we basically are horrible at having the conversation around violence and horrible at having this conversation of, of violence, maybe around children even and helping them to understand it. And so what we're seeing is children are getting their education around violence, say through something like video games, which glorifies it and, um, that removes a lot of the dirty and gory elements of it and or 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 doesn't and mm-hmm. makes it unrealistic right yeah yeah well i, I think no, no matter what if you take a kid who's maybe killed a thousand people in a video game but they, you know they just like respawn and come back to life or whatever but then they actually see somebody die in real life i still think there's a difference and they recognize oh, that yeah. difference right yeah. and it's going to affect them differently I, well that's the thing that's like that's training right you can prepare people to do it. You can't prepare people to, to deal with it. That, Cause that's the difference with, with violence, right? If, if you can, if you can have someone ready up a rifle 16,000 times, they can shoot a person, mm-hmm. right? Because if you make the target look like a person, which is what the U S army does, guess what? They're going to shoot it. Right. Yeah. And when that person yeah. pops up, just like the, the targets pop up on the qualification <laughs> they're the going to pull their rifle up and they're going to shoot. And yeah. then, and then after the firefight's gone and they go clear the body and they see that human being, the question is, can you deal with it? Because the army mm-hmm. doesn't prepare you for that. The army doesn't prepare you even after that, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. help you necessarily after that. It has resources to help you. But the reality is, is that when you conduct violence, right? the the processing of that violence is really based on your own perspective and how you approach the conversation 
And so if you've never been prepared to, you know, expose that conversation, um, to expose the justification for what you've done, right. You can do it, but that doesn't mean you know how to deal with it. And that's where, you know, veterans who have killed people often, you know, they'll, they'll commit suicide. They'll give up. Right. They they don't see a way out of it. So then what comes to mind here is this idea that we should take back, I say we, I don't know, as a society, at a parental level, at an educational level, at some level within society, should we consider taking back, in a sense, the conversation around violence instead of sweeping it into a corner where it's talked about in, say, rap videos or uh, war movies or video games, violent video games. That's where we're getting our education on violence. Does that need to be brought back? And should we focus on potentially taking young people and saying, we're going to teach you how to engage in controlled violence. And would that, because it almost goes back to this conversation around the second amendment in one sense, mm-hmm. where it's like the, the threat of violence is enough to deter. Would we see lower incidences of bullying, lower incidences of fights? If everyone you looked at, you wondered, well, I know they're also trained to commit violence. Do I want to risk that? But if I don't, if I know that they're not trained to commit violence, then I'm not scared. But I think, you know, the, the the line where you're going down, I think it it's I think it's rational, but logically, I think what happens is there's a a, a maturation of the idea that I don't want to commit violence. Mm-hmm. This sucks, right? Like when you first get, if you get, if you ever get in a fight, right? And and maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but I I remember one of my first mm-hmm. fights, right? Yep. You don't realize how exhausting it is until you're in it right like in the first minute you're you're fucking fried right the adrenaline dump the 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 amount of effort that goes into you know trying to fight to survive uh is remarkable and it and it just if it gets prolonged i still remember like some of my jujitsu battles like i've i've battled for 45 minutes in jujitsu i was dead Right. Like I felt like, like my whole body was kind of just get, I gave up that day. I was like, I'm I'm going to bed. Right. It was like one o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, I'm just going to lay in bed for the rest of the day. Like this, this hurts. Right. And and so you get, you get this understanding that of, I I think the realism of violence where it's taxing, right. Certainly there's going to be, uh, there's going to be the crazy people who love it. Right. Absolutely love it. Who, you know, it's like the people that like run ultra marathons for fun, right? Like it's like, they, they love that shit, right? Like there's going to be, maybe people, they're suited for being in the infantry, right? They put them in the infantry. Exactly. Right. Put them in a place where they can actually conduct that violence for a purpose. Right. I'm not mm. saying that that's a good idea or not, but you know, right. But it's, it is, it does beg the question, right? I'm not going to say that, you know, building violence into culture is beneficial. I don't know, but I think we should study it. Right. Mm -hmm. I think if you, if you teach kids wrestling or jujitsu or something of the sort, right. I certainly don't think, uh, teaching girls jujitsu or wrestling or anything like that is a bad thing because absolutely, you know, that, that is a remarkably beneficial thing because it, it doesn't matter if you're bigger or smaller in jujitsu, you can still be lethal. You can still be harmful. Um, and that is always a good thing, right? Because you should be able to defend yourself, um, if you're smaller. Um, and so like, I think it, I think it could be beneficial. And so we should approach the conversation of how do we, 
implement a controlled level of violence in society um, to a point where we even account for the people that actually enjoy violence, right? Right. Like, I'm not saying that a gladiatorial arena would be the best idea, but maybe that's the best place for psychopaths. I'm just right. saying, right? Like, you know, it's, it's, I, it's, I'm, I'm it's a plausible like I don't know, death race or something. I don't know if that's a good, yeah. a good example, right? It's like, okay, you know, or, uh, was a squid game. Um, that yeah. was one that, um, that I think got, got a whole bunch of attention probably because it was like putting this inner face. Yeah. This idea of being um, entertained by, by violence. I, I didn't watch it, but I, I, I at least know enough about it that it's like a, yeah, it, it was very, um, almost like shocking in a sense. Yeah. But uh, it, it's interesting because I've been in fights and as a kid, yeah. I remember after being in a fight, I'd actually go home and cry. Yeah. And I didn't, I couldn't really put it together because like half the time I was the instigator of this fight, like, cause I had a temper and I would get angry and I would inflict violence on somebody else. But like once all that adrenaline like dumped and I went home and I wasn't in a dangerous situation, I'd go home and cry yeah. because I was like, I hurt another human being yeah. and that actually doesn't sit well with me. I wish I didn't do that. It doesn't sit well with most people. That's natural. That's the funny thing. It's like yeah. when you start to, when you actually start to do it, you realize that you don't, you don't like that. Most people don't like that. Most people don't like to hurt other people. Mm. And so it's, you know, there are there, and then you start to learn who actually does. And that's probably a good thing in some, in some circumstances where, you know, like, right. Hey, this guy, uh, this guy actually seems to enjoy this. Not to say like you should single him out and be like, you know, this can be a serial killer, but it's not a bad idea to, to be like, Hey, these are your opportunities where you can do this for benefit of not only yourself, but maybe your country, right? Like think of thinking of like Dexter. <laughs> Yeah, like like this is you know what this is the guy that we need uh you know as a sniper or as a as an infantryman, right? Like because it it does that does require a certain level of savagery, right? Of hmm. disconnection where you can say, I I I'm okay with killing this human being, right? Because if you don't have that, right, you won't be an effective sniper, you won't be an effective infantryman, because you have to do that. Right, you have to be, be willing to do that. That's why I was an engineer. Yeah. I was like I'm, tur I'm turning wrenches, and if if I have a rifle in my hand, something went seriously wrong. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, obviously I was trained in it, but I was like, if I have a rifle in my hand with the intent yeah. of of some, you know, killing another person, something went wrong because right. I I really didn't want to be put in a position where I had to inflict violence, even though I spent time in the military. Yeah, which is kind of again a curious paradox here. Right. Well, <laughs> this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I always learn something from these conversations. <laughs> I come away with like an, uh, just a, an enriched perspective, I think is probably the best way to put it. You know, uh, lastly, you mentioned being a mental health coach on TikTok. And mm -hmm. I want to mention that because I think it's important that people know where to find you and they know where to, to learn more about what it is that you do. But I, I think to me, it, it's fascinating to me, this idea of being a mental health coach on TikTok. <laughs> because, because... And, and I, I say this because I'm I, because of you. I have a TikTok account. I've actually put stuff on TikTok. It's true. true. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't I don't know what it is about the TikTok algorithm, or maybe it's just about the 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 percentage of content creators that engage in this. But I mean, I, I seem to get shown a lot of like female doing things that uh, almost yeah. equates to being softcore. And I'm like, why do you keep putting this in my feed? And I think it'd be really helpful. If people saw more of your kind of content on TikTok. The the reason. 
I think people see that first, right? Because if you're if if you're new to the TikTok algorithm and and if you mm. don't understand algorithms yet, and this is for not for just you, but for yeah, other yeah. people, um, the algorithm gives you what most people like, right? It's it's a broad spectrum. I'm gonna throw a bunch of shit at the wall, but I'm gonna throw a bunch of shit that I am educated on, right? See what sticks. People like that. They like softcore porn, right? That's humanity is is kind of fucking bad, right? Like there's there's a piece of us that is always kind of a little bit evil, and there's mm. there's there, we want to be good, but there's always a little bit of evil. That, I'm not saying that that porn is evil, but there's there's a part of us that wants to see that right and so until you kind of dive into what you're actually focusing on right and so until you start making choices of i don't want to see this and so you can you can actually go in and say i'm not interested tiktok um hmm. until you do that and you start narrowing in your content um you're going to get whatever tiktok thinks you like, like so wh- you whatever on, is popular right yeah or yeah like trending and but but ultimately the the algorithm learns you that's that's remarkable, right? We're, we're getting into a, a realm of society where a, a computer is actually learning about who you are and what you want to see, right? So if you stay on a specific thing, right? If you stay on those dancing, you know, those, those softcore porns, guess what? You're going to get gonna- more of them, right? And it's that simple. And so it takes, it takes months. I think, you know, it's not a, it's not a one week thing and you get rid of everything, um, but it does take months to kind of move into exactly what you want once you first start TikTok. I do know that. That's good to know. Uh, where, where can they find you on TikTok and where else can they learn more about you and what it is that you do? I'm Dylan Sessler, Dylan underscore Sessler on TikTok. You can just look me up. Um, I, I have a book called Defy the Darkness on Amazon. I, I did the Audible for it. I would recommend the Audible, um, but you can also find me at DylanSessler.com. Um, I've got a podcast called the Dylan experience. It's been, uh, it's going great. Um, yeah, you can, you can find me any of those places and probably more, I'm probably going to be more places going where, you know, whenever this comes out, I don't even know. I'm, I'm all over the place right now. I'm doing everything. What I can tell you is, is this is going to, this is going to publish like the day after we've recorded. So <laughs> it's, it's going to be I'm right up doing everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hope you, I hope you still are because I, I, I greatly value as a human being. I love what you're doing in the world. I love what you're, you're contributing. Um, it, it's amazing. So I, I appreciate you being willing to, to jump into a conversation like this and share uh, a lot of oh. wisdom that, uh, that I've taken away from this, man. So I look forward to our next one. Absolutely. And I, I thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for tuning into It's Not So Black and White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, or leave a review because that helps this podcast to reach more people. It's fascinating to explore the thoughts and minds of those who see the world differently. We don't have to agree on everything in order to engage in civil discourse. So I hope this podcast inspires you to have an open mind and a willingness to see things from another perspective. In this, we can create a hopeful future moving forward. Whatever your beliefs is, Go and investigate it, like really dig down into it. And you o- you can only benefit from really thinking deeply about why you believe something.